Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to Discover Someone Remarkable, conversations worth sharing. Join me as I interview passionate founders and industry experts, people who think differently, challenge the status quo, and are building a legacy. People who I consider truly remarkable. In today's episode, I interviewed Jason Andrew, CEO of Ray White New South Wales. Jason is a leading industry commentator, keynote speaker, and mentor. Previous to joining Ray White, Jason ran his own highly successful auctioneering business. As a group, they called over 3,000 auctions per year, with Jason personally calling over 30,000 in his career alone. Jason was awarded the Australasian Auctioneering Champion in 2010 and was also named Auctioneer of the Year by the Real Estate Institute of Queensland in 2009, 2012, and 2014. Today we discuss the effect COVID-19 has had on the Australian real estate market and what the outlook could be, how Jason built his auctioneering business and what it takes to be a great auctioneer, plus some tips on how we can all improve our public speaking skills. He explains why he left his own business to join Ray White, his take on leadership, running successful conferences and the challenges the real estate industry faces. I hope you enjoy Jason's open and honest take on what it takes to succeed in real estate and in business. Well, Jace, thanks very much for coming on the program, man. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. But we always kick things off the same way with a simple icebreaker. So what's your favorite brand and why? You know, I've been thinking about this since you sent through the original list of questions. And I hate that it sounds cliched, but I'm going to run with the company that I work with. And it's an odd thing because, you know, in my former line of work, I was independent. I was quick. I was nimble. I was agile. I sort of ran my own company and I loved that entrepreneurial flair, but Something sort of always drew me back to the company that now, I now work for. And, you know, for those of you who don't know Ray White, it's, it's a family-owned owned company. It's been sort of in the one family since 1902. Fourth generation of leadership now runs it, which is my direct boss. And there's something sort of very special about it. And even, you know, the way that we have navigated through these sort of recent uncertain times has been, you know, something truly spectacular. Our media presence has been brilliant. Dan White has been front and centre, you know, on the media. And so there's just a lot to admire about, you know, a brand that is very much a living entity. And that's how I feel that this one is. I don't necessarily have affiliation with too many others or know the ins and outs. You know, so my very long-winded icebreaker answer, Dan Rao, is, is this company. Well, that's cool. I mean, yeah, it's pretty amazing to have a brand, uh, business for four generations and still, you know, at the, I guess, the height or leading the industry today. At the EY Awards, we were named as one of the top businesses in the world for family businesses. And, you know, Brian White, who's the chairman of the company, sort of hops up on stage and, and speaks at those sorts of events in Monaco. It sounds, you know, quite sort of, you know, wonky to suggest it that way. But it is very, very rare to kind of have, um, you know, fourth generation of, of leadership. You know, the, the first generation makes the money, the second generation spends it. You know, it kind of doesn't usually last past that period. So to get to the fourth is pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And mate, what effect has COVID-19 had on real estate? Yeah, great question. I mean, March 23rd, ScoMo came out and sort of shut a lot of stuff down. But one of the things that, that was sort of shut down, obviously, were things like, you know, auctions. We're a very fortunate industry in the sense that we were able to still conduct 
through a whole host of lobbying from us and, and other people in the industry. But we were still fortunate to run private open for inspections as such, whereas our New Zealand business, you know, had full sort of state for lockdown where they weren't allowed to trade in essence, for those 28 days. We kind of were managed to kind of sneak through with that. We were able then, because we were able to have private inspections, we were able to transact real estate quite effectively. We built an online forum that allowed transparency for things like auctions, which was very, very important for us. We conducted sort of close enough to 500 auctions on this online platform within that sort of four to six week period right around the country. And one of the real highlights for us was we had you know an auctioneer who'd flown back from New Zealand because that's where he works but his family lives in Brisbane so he was there with them we as a team were actually powering the technology here in Sydney that he was using and the property that he was auctioning was actually in New Zealand so it, it, despite them being in, in stage four lockdown they just couldn't have inspections it didn't mean they, they couldn't transact as such so you know that sort of type of remarkable story is something that has come out of this. That technology is a real player that the tyranny of distance just doesn't exist anymore. You know, the new form of telephone is Zoom or or Google Hangouts or at least some form of sort of face-to-face, you know, so that you can have that transparent environment. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think there's been lots of great cases of businesses who have just had to adapt quickly and they're probably learning some things that they can implement in the long term in terms of maybe you don't need to travel as much for certain meetings or you know have to fly as much overseas to call auctions. I mean, there's always a beauty in face-to-face, but I think we're so heavily relying on that before that perhaps you know, there is an opportunity to um, still work with people, like you said, from distance. Yeah, nothing will ever sort of replace, you know, face-to-face conversations or belly-to-belly conversations. They are the most important thing, uh, regardless of what industry that you are in. But ultimately, you know, it, it is good to have, you know, a secondary piece of, of communication. And, you know, interestingly enough, Dan, you know, we, we, we kind of found throughout the course of COVID that as people came into our Google Hangout forum where we were conducting our auction, so I'd be here in Sydney and in our offices in King Street, we'd have a big green screen behind me and and people would come into this Google Hangout forum and, and bid for properties. And we found in the early days that people would come in and they'd have their mute button off and, you know, they'd have their camera on and they didn't have their shirt on and all this type of stuff. But as time went on, people being the consumers would come in and they'd have their mute button off and cameras off. So there's no question that consumer behaviour completely changed in the course of a few weeks. They got very, very used to being in lockdown and then communicating by way of these mechanisms. You made an interesting point earlier about, you know, sort of moving quickly as a corporate bureaucracy can sort of reign, but that's been one of the most exciting things about this period of time for a company like ours, which we move with what we call slow haste, which is we like to think that we move quickly, but we are a corporate, we're a big behemoth and we do to a point take our time with a lot of things and probably not at the pace that that sort of a smaller business can. But COVID really did free those shackles and allow a lot of people to just make immediate changes. So that was quite an exciting thing to see that we could actually make decisions and make them quickly. Yeah, that's cool. And how do you expect the different markets in Australia to respond? In sort of what regard? Well, I mean, like, it feels like property, a few people I've spoken to in property at the moment, you know, in June, everyone seems to be holding off till September or thinking, you know, oh, maybe we'll wait. Chatting to a mate yesterday and he was saying a lot of buyers sort of waiting, sellers are sort of waiting. Do you think that you know, September's going to come and things are going to change or 
you know, with the end of JobKeeper and JobSeeker being reduced, do you think property is going to increase? This has been one of the most sort of incredible stories, hasn't it? Because in sort of any normal sort of turn down of an economy, you would see some assistance from government, but not really the assistance that we've seen. This sort of turn down is more of a wartime footing whereby, you know, government did what they could to ask companies to maintain workers and all of these sorts of things. And we all know the, the unemployment rates and what they are, but I think the stimulus the government has provided has been first class. The difference between this turn down and, and sort of the 2009 turn down of, of the GFC is that, you know, money is outrageously cheap. When you sort of have a look at that, I think that's softening the blow enormously, as well as sort of things like JobKeeper. Banks have come to the table and have been first class with sort of their mortgage holidays and so on. Now, there's no question that people have hesitancy possibly to come to market and they might be holding off till the end of the year. But, you know, Dan, our sort of subsidiary company that we have with Ray White is a company called Loan Market, which is the third biggest mortgage broking company in the country. And that's run by Sam White, who is Dan White's brother, and Brian White is the father, who's the chairman. But they just, in, in the month of May, had their biggest month ever in terms of settlements. Um, yeah, where wow. We're 85% up year on year. And so when you have a look at, at the amount of people who are looking at acquiring money, pre-approvals are through the roof. You know, those sorts of things, I think, for property market are quite a good time. I'm not saying that it's a, it's a good market by any stretch, but I'm certainly saying that it is a resilient market. People do need to live somewhere. It's one of the, the things that we've been saying throughout this time, whereby we wouldn't be in any other industry. We are very fortunate that people do need to live somewhere. We treat that with the respect that it deserves. We have no form of hubris whatsoever around that. But off the back of sort of money being cheap, there isn't much stock in market. It's 35% down across the country. In New South Wales, it's 20% down. So with the absence of competition, we are actually seeing more buyers than we ever have before. In New South Wales, we had six registered bidders per auction that we did. Across the country, had we had four registered bidders per auction that we did. So all of these numbers actually speak to, again, not a good market. The language has to be it's a resilient market. How will sort of September, October change things? Well, probably more stock to market, which won't necessarily be a good thing. And with the removal of some of the government stimulus, as well as the banking holidays, will there be more people under duress? For sure. I don't think that that will be spring. If that does occur, it may fall into next year. But ultimately, the big thing is that people need to live somewhere that the activity is there and money is cheap and that's the thing that we haven't seen before yeah cool that's a good point so jay's taking it back a bit you're an auctioneer as well as you know ceo mate what age did you decide you wanted to be an auctioneer <laughs> that's funny like my uh, my stepfather was a was in real estate and and we used to have this bookshelf and he used to have this little weird hammer that sat up on there and i didn't even know what it was then like but I'd love to say that I saw the gavel that was sitting on our bookshelf and, and kind of decided at that time that that would be appropriate, but it, it wasn't the case. I kind of dropped out of university. I was studying property economics. It, it wasn't quite for me. I loved the university lifestyle, but I didn't necessarily like going to classes, which sounded a lot <laughs> like I was only interested in school. At, I was only interested in football at school versus the other, the other stuff. But you know, I think there comes a time where I sort of fell into real estate and became a cadet for this brand, being Ray White. And I just saw a guy who 
we both know his name was Hazley Cush or is Hazley Cush. And he's, you know, a really great guy, very well-known auctioneer and business owner in Brisbane. And I just knew at that moment that I didn't want to be anything else. I was quite fortunate to be a, a relatively good public speaker at school. I'd won a few awards and sort of I was, I was a, a debater and all of those sorts of things. I was the second debater, you know, like the guy who always was like, you know, you know, Mr. Speaker, the opposition's case is like a block of Swiss cheese. It has many holes in it, you know, those sorts of <laughs> arguments but I think from that time from there I recognized that the real estate was something that I, I enjoyed but certainly I love the element of the auction there's one thing to be an auctioneer though Dan and then there's another thing to run an auction business and what I take great pride in is the, the business that we built in Brisbane which is not a market as you know that's it's conducive to a huge amount of success when it comes to auctions. It's only 10% of the market up there against private treaty. So we built a business that, that travelled to and from New Zealand. I did a lot of auctions in Western Australia, in Victoria and the like and, and kind of built a team of auctioneers. At our height, I think we had six or seven auctioneers and we were doing close enough to 3,000 auctions each year. So I think to answer your question, I made the decision to be an auctioneer early, but the decision to be an auctioneering business was probably the harder part of it because that's not an easy thing in the market that we were from. Yeah. And is that common to have many auctioneering businesses or is it often that auctioneers will be, you know, a contractor that real estate agents will appoint sort of, you know, one person, one man band type of thing? Yeah. So if you look at brands like McGrath as an example, every single one of their auctions must be conducted by their in-house auction team. Uh, At Ray White, we'll do 23,000 auctions this year, which is one in every four auctions in the country. And, you know, we've had like 1,400 auctioneers a year to date call those auctions. That's a range of of agents, principals, contract auctioneers, people who run businesses and corporate-based auctioneers. So to answer your question, it is uncommon to have an auctioneering business. Most people are sort of contractors, but there are some very, very good examples of that. And they became more prevalent sort of five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it was. There's an excellent auctioneering business down here in Sydney called Cooley Auctions. A lot of people would know that business or at least know the individual. He, um, he's very good at marketing himself. He's on the block a lot. He's usually the person who wins that, you know, so that's probably the, the preeminent auctioneering business in the country that everyone sort of aspires to be like as such in that space. And how early on when you were doing your auctioneering business, did you decide that, hey, I'm going to actually turn this into a pure auctioneering business? Because I imagine when you started, it would have just been you calling them. And when was it that you took on your first employees? Yeah. So I had a lot of people sort of coming at, at me sort of saying, you know, like, can you teach me how to do it and all that type of stuff? And I remember running a course that was a six month course where we had 20 people in it. There are a few that are in that course and their their talent was quite incredible. I'd recognised it early and sort of started to target them to join our team. You know, when you sort of talk about about an auction business, Dan, you know, the funny thing is that people believe that you're selling a skill set or that you're selling a voice box or whatever it is. Funnily enough, an auctioneering business sells time. You know, on a Saturday, we have time slots between nine o'clock and six o'clock with nine and six probably being unpreferable, five o'clock being sort of not so great either. But everywhere in between is seen as an okay time. A lot of people like to book 11, 12s and ones. They just think that that's when the most amount of people will be out. So there's only a certain amount of auctions that you can actually conduct in a day before you start to have overflow and lose that business. And that overflow or or leakage was becoming 
too large not to sort of embark down the path of of having secondary auctioneers who are contractors to my business to come in and, and sort of deepen the brand and deepen the level of service that we offered. Cool thing was that, you know, I used to run a lot of what's known as in-room auctions where we'd run 20, 30, 40 auctions at a time. And as an auctioneering business, the auctioneer would stand behind the lectern but essentially lose a lot of their power because they're 10, 15, 20 metres, 50 metres away from the buyers but not really able to interact other than that sort of relationship from, from 10 metres or from distance. So to have a team of auctioneers who were then able to come in to talk to vendors, to talk to buyers on the floor was very important. It's important to recognise that we didn't usurp sort of the relationship that the agents have. My primary customer was always the agents and to be there to support the agents and they would then sell our services to the vendors at a listing presentation. And, I mean, did you only call the auctions on Saturdays? Yeah, so again, a really good question. In the end, I brought on the team. I was better if I was selling time to try and then sell different times. So I started doing a lot of auctions on Sundays. It was not uncommon to be booked out on a Friday afternoon, 11 o'clock till 4 o'clock. I conducted a lot of auctions on the Sunshine Coast. There was a key client of mine up there who every week essentially ran auctions sort of during those time slots. I mean, ultimately, you know, no one sort of came out on high and said, this is the time and day that that auctions must be held. We started to do a lot of midweek auctions as in-rooms, a lot of midweek on-site auctions as well. And so in the end, I think sort of, you know, the the most amount of auctions that I actually conducted in a month ended up being sort of like 110 or, or somewhere in that vicinity, which was a pretty sort of cool number. But if I think about how it is that I actually achieved that, Lots of in rooms, lots of midweeks. You, you just can't do sort of 10 auctions on a Saturday because otherwise you're limited by your capacity to a number of about 40, obviously. So, does that mean you basically didn't have a weekend for 10 or so years? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's one of the sacrifices that you need to make, you know. And uh, my friends didn't really understand it, to be honest with you, Dan. And, and they all wanted to go out, of course, on a Saturday night. But you know, after, after sort of jumping up and being the loudest and most sort of vivacious person in the room, and it, it sort of took its toll on you, I suppose. And so you'd, you'd be in bed first thing on Saturday night. You'd certainly be in there Friday night as well. Um, so, yeah, very rarely got a weekend. I didn't really know what that was. I had a couple of kids over the last few years. As you know, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And when we had our second baby, I, I started taking – I had a year of not calling auctions. And I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know what a two-day weekend actually looked like. Sort of started to get a little bit bored, to be fair. Um, <laughs> It's an interesting thing. It's, I mean, real estate very much is a six-day week as a bare minimum and if you aren't willing to do that time, then, um, then yeah, you're, you're sort of probably just going to be outworked by some people. Yeah, it's a good point. So much time and effort that goes into the, you know, bit to being a good real estate agent. I remember at one of your conferences, one of the real events, I remember Matt Lancashire standing up and talking and saying he'd know if he'd had a good month because he could go through his phone bill and check how many calls he'd made. Yeah, And if it hit a certain amount of calls, he knew that, you know, that was going to be a good result. And it was literally just him sitting on the phone for most of the day. I think this is the thing, Dan, and we joke around, you know, knowing our background and where we got to know one another at, at the gym that we went to. But, you know, like it's just some people have larger engines. And the saying that I sort of taught all of our staff in my company and sort of now in this company as well, which is, is sort of much larger, but you know, we're never going to be outworked, you know, and that fundamentally is the thing. People can't sort of receive a phone call. You know, there's a great real estate agent down here in 
in Sydney. His name's Gavin Rubenstein. He's one of the leading agents in the country and he's recognised as one of the real high flyers. And he sort of speaks on stage about the fact that he used to sit next to his mentor and their phone would ring all the time and he used to crave for the phone to ring. And in the end, it rings and it rings a lot. And he was out with a girlfriend one night and sort of pulling up at sort of nine o'clock on a Saturday night at a restaurant and his phone rang. And he answered it. He sort of took the question and took the inquiry and then sort of hung up. And the girl said, I can't believe that they're still calling you at this time. And he said, well, well, like I wanted my phone to ring. So, (laughs) you know, there was a stage when I would have done anything to make my phone ring. So now that it rings, how can I actually admonish it? And that very much sort of lives in that space of, you know, what we want on the way up, we kind of need to actually take once we're there. So that's that's just a, a big engine place as per sort of one of our, the people that we like, Dan, sort of Seth Godin says, it's a, it's a sea of infinity. It's sort of the work is never finished. So yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I love that. But so what does it take to be a good auctioneer? You need to be a really good driver because on a Saturday, you, you're sort of racing from auction to auction. That's one of the untold talents. <laughs> I thought you meant like driver as in having like a driven personality, but you literally uh, mean uh, <laughs> driver. Uh, <laughs> You know, so funnily enough, some, some of, one of my younger auctioneers once asked me, he said, what's, what's the number one thing, like on a Saturday, what do I need? And I said, you always need to park your car in the direction that you are leaving. Uh, and like, <laughs> you, you just didn't understand because I said before, we sell time. And of course, on, on the weekend, you could do a nine o'clock auction. It could be half an hour and you got half an hour of travel time. And for everyone else, a Saturday is an easy time. It's slow. It's driving to kids' sport. It's going to the shops or whatever it is. And so, you know, racing past those people with high beams on is something that that you have to be very good at but with the facetiousness aside I think that the relationship building is important but it seems like a bit of a cop-out to say it we have multiple customers when you look at it the primary customer has to be the agent you have to know what it is that you're talking about as an auctioneer you have to have deep knowledge around not only auction process but around real estate as well and then I think that the other sort of role you know which again is sort of an untold role but it's about making people feel as comfortable as what you possibly can with inside a short period of time. So buyers and sellers are nervous on the day. And if you don't head into those environments, recognizing that the elephant in the room is certainly that sort of angst, then you're missing a trick. So there's a great saying that I learned early on, which was for us, it sounds like a broken record, but for them, it's their opening night on Broadway. And I always <laughs> remembered that because it could be my 25th auction for the day, but for this person, it was their first. And so I yeah. needed to try six o'clock like it was my nine o'clock and so the buyers at the six or the sellers at the six were equally as important so i'd head in and i'd I'd always try and make them feel as comfortable as what i could and that was done in a number of different ways you might have sellers sitting down on a couch you would have a lot of people who would come in and from a body language perspective would stand over the top of them to deliver their message i would always get down on one knee to talk to those individuals and that just made them feel more comfortable you know to buyers before an auction i would always ask questions you know my manner was very conversational it wasn't a broadcast it was more sort of in that conversational style so those sorts of things I learned pretty early on if I just jumped up and if I just projected and yelled and sort of used the sort of strength of my voice that wouldn't have worked so that for me is a real skill set of making sure that someone feels comfortable and I'll never forget 
a seller once said to me, I walked in because I was quite young and I looked quite young until I took up this job and I reckon I aged, you know, about 20 years and about a year. <laughs> but as an auctioneer when, you know, I had absolute liberty and it was amazing, you know, I always looked quite young and I would walk into an auction and this vendor said to me, my goodness, you are incredibly young. And I said, yeah, and it's my first auction. I'm really, really nervous. <laughs> and you could just see the vendor just go white. And I just held her on the hand and I said, look, I'm only kidding. You're in very, very good hands. We as a business conduct 3,000 auctions each year. We're in good hands. Let's sit down. Let's have a conversation about what it is that your concerns are. Uh, let's talk about the things that you've loved about living here. And I'll ensure that I express that when I'm out there in the open forum. You know, that type of sort of, you know, almost alleviating the concern before or the concern sort of read its head it became a, a very important thing that that comfortability yeah i like that and i like how you used humor to sort of defuse the situation as well and you got to be open. funny to do that Dan, so you know you're, you're out of line with that <laughs> unfortunately so so what are some things because not everyone listening to this is going to be i guess looking to be an auctioneer or a real estate agent but what's some things in general that people can do to improve their public speaking I think the biggest thing that I say to people, I'll talk about body language shortly because that's a, that's a huge element of it, right? But probably the thing that I'll say is you have to say it the way that it's written. Too many people, I mean, there are some beautiful analogies where, you know, like Ron Burgundy on, on the movie Anchorman will say anything <laughs> on the teleprompter. So he says, I'm Ron Burgundy. With the, with the question mark because he says it's the way that's written, you know, and, you know, my favourite band is Coldplay and there's some lyrics that go, you know, I'd rather be a comma than a full stop in the song Every Teardrop is a Waterfall. But the thing is that when we speak, we actually do do that. We prefer to place commas instead of placing full stops. Mm. We completely and utterly forget about the punctuation or, or sort of the grammar and it becomes a big issue. So where someone asks a question, invariably we don't actually leave the space for a response. As a speaker, we forget that there's a paragraph in between which is white space where nothing is supposed to be said. You know, we forget that there's a full stop where people actually need to take a breath and, and sort of absorb what it is that you have said. The question marks, the exclamation marks, the understanding of language like good morning. It's not good morning. It's a good morning and all of those sorts of things. And as a speaker, you kind of need to understand the words that you're using. We grow up, we sort of, we get very lazy with our language, which is why we say things like, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, L-A-D-Y-Z-N-G-N-D-L-M-N, essentially. <laughs> and it's just, it's horrendous. And you'll be happy to hear me say, Dan, that I believe, you know, the Australians went down the path of the American sort of version of, of the English language and the New Zealanders or the Kiwis went down the path of the English version and they enunciate their words absolutely superbly. So thinking about what's coming out of our mouth and sort of using the grammar and the punctuation correctly are keys to, be, 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 to being a good speaker. But the other thing, I said body language, and again, I'll get to it in a minute, but the other thing is... You always must ensure that your brain is before your mouth. Too many people just start and their, their words just come flying out of their mouth and all of a sudden they find themselves in trouble when they're trying to play catch up with their brain. When I talk, my brain is always in front of my mouth. And even if that means that I need to stop and pause and breathe and find the next route to head down, that for me is purposeful movement instead of just noise for the sake of it. 
So all those sorts of things are important. And again, to emphasize body language and not sort of using closed body language. You'll remember Julia Gillard sort of during a, a national campaign for Prime Minister was moving forward, which essentially felt like she was pushing the Australian public away. So as an auctioneer, I'm very open with my body language. I'll say, come with me on your journey to lifestyle and sort of use an open body language instead of what a lot of people do, which is be very direct and abrasive with sort of their body language, which in an environment where people are already looking for excuses or reasons why not to participate, it just gives people more reasons why they shouldn't. Yeah, that's great. That's really interesting. So, Jace, you ran an incredibly successful auctioneering business. What made you go back to Ray White? In 2007, I was offered a job as the chief auctioneer for Ray White New South Wales, which at the time I took and, and my family had some health issues. And so in the end, I sort of said no to it. But that was the first sort of request to do it. I sort of built a, a pretty good business from there. And then I built a, a data collection sort of business around auctions. We sort of extracted 25 bits of information to every auction that we conducted. And so Ray White became very interested in, in rolling that out nationally. So again, I received a job offer from them to roll out their national auctions, which again, I explored quite closely and, and that was sort of a six month process. And in the end, my business almost came to a grinding halt because I'd made the decision to do it, but we couldn't quite match our intentions at that time, which included, you know, I wanted to bring across my training business, which includes a couple of, of conferences. And Ray White just couldn't make that work with inside their framework, which is understandable. You know, they, they didn't want someone who was new running an independent conference because otherwise all of the, the rest of their staff could as such. So I, I sort of understood that precedent and we went our separate ways. But I'd kind of been around the company for a long period of time. And to be fair, Dan, and you mightn't like hearing this, when I was sort of doing my auctions or doing my training, which became a, a very large part of, of, of our company, training auctioneers or training real estate agents how to be better real estate agents, in the end, I just found the work quite soulless. I found I couldn't necessarily make the impact that I wanted to. I felt like I didn't have any scale. And so I thought I would love to sort of use my skill set in a business that actually had scale. So this company now that I work for, we have 12% market share around the country. We have sort of an enormous sales force. We're sort of incredibly proud of, of our members, but by no means are we perfect. The work is unfinished sort of every single day. We're only as good as our last transaction. We've got to be proud of every transaction, sort of all of these things that the family lives by. And so that scale was something that I was incredibly attracted to. To. And, and this role, CEO of New South Wales for Ray White, was sort of my insatiable appetite for sort of scale, you know, Australia's largest market, 28% of Australia's real estate transactions come out of this state. It was sort of a, a bit of a no-brainer for me, given where I was at. And you lose a lot of what you always had or sort of strive for, which was as quick, nimble, agile, I could colour outside of the lines, I could do all of those sorts of things in my own business. To all of a sudden being answerable to someone else is a big change. But I sort of had to regularly remind myself in that first six to 12 month period when there are lots of, of sort of restless nights and questioning yourself that this is what you wanted based on the fact that you wanted to make a larger impact across a broader group. Yeah. And what were the other challenges of going from being a employer to an employee? <laughs> I like to think that I still do a lot of employing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Look, I mean, the big thing for me was that you make a lot of decisions, you know, in your own line of work where the buck essentially does stop with you. In this type of environment, even, even in my position, you, you sort of 
it's very consultative. And though that you find that challenging early because leadership for me before I joined this company was about leading. And leadership to me now is actually about pushing others forward and, and bringing others through and being more collaborative with my decision making and sort of asking better questions to ensure that we arrive at the position that we need to instead of being the person who had to know everything. One of the things I love about the Whites you would think a company who has been around for such a long period of time and who has incredible business acumen, you would think that a company like this with the leadership that we have, that they would have all the answers. And you actually quickly identify that they have no answers. They just spend a lot of time in the questions. And when you spend a lot of time in the questions and lean into it strongly enough, sooner or later that the right answers start to emerge. That's what our leadership has been very, very good at. And that's sort of been my transition from being someone who could just move with pace to all of a sudden someone who would sort of spend some time arriving at the correct solution. And sometimes that loses us stuff, but most of the time for the good work, it's sort of still there. Yeah, it's, that's interesting. And Jace, so quite a few years ago with your own business, you did run a conference called The Real Event. What made you want to start your own conference or event? Like a lot of industries, Dan, there are some great people and there are some bad people. And I find that when people think about our industry, they think of that sort of sleazy salesperson sort of on the phone and, you know, with the sunnies on and, you know, arriving late in their European sports car and all that type of stuff. And that sort of arrogant sort of bravado was the antithesis of who I was. And also, a lot of the really good people that I spent time with as well. So I started the real event because I was just so vehement in my belief that there were more good people than poor people in our industry. Our industry is known to be debaucherous to a point, you know, it's, you know, sex, it's, it's alcohol, it's drugs, it's, it's that type of stuff, sort of, you know, that Wall Street lifestyle. And I, I just can't stand sort of most of those things. So I think the real event was kind of built from that space. It was built around, we are an industry of good people. Let's stop making it about us as individuals and let's start making it about our customers. And how can we provide demonstrable value or deep levels of service to everyone who comes into contact with us or who has an interaction with us? And ultimately, if we could spend more time with good people, then magic was going to happen. And, you know, no use sort of dragging the poor people into that good people pile because it would just rot it. So that was sort of where it was derived from. And it was a really amazing thing. It was something that I was very, very proud of, something that, um, Still got the books sort of sitting in front of me that you helped me with the branding on, Dan. You know, like it's... Um... <laughs> well, man, I mean, it's a conference for me that really stood out. I mean, I'm you know, not a real estate agent. I sat in the crowd and watched you know, Australia's best real estate agents speak and deliver incredible keynotes. And there's still takeaways from that event, you know, almost five years ago. I thought it was a really cool thing that you did. And I mean, it was... How many of those did you end up running? Because they were all at the Powerhouse in Brisbane, weren't they? Yeah, pretty much. We ran three or four at the Powerhouse and there were a couple one or two, I think, that we ran on the Sunshine Coast. Actually, no, we also ran them at the convention centre as well. So I think there were two at the convention centre, three at the powerhouse, and then one on the Sunshine Coast. It must have been six in the end. But, yeah, you know, like it's, again, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, there there are certain people who you just don't gel with with what it is that, that they do or who it is that they, or what it is that they stand for. The real event 
was certainly a, a true example, in my opinion, of, of the good people in our industry. I tried to build it kind of in that TED space where I always liked the theatre in the round. I didn't want the speaker on stage to just deliver a keynote. I actually wanted the speaker on stage to be in amongst the audience. So we did sort of this theatre in the round style stage where the speaker had people on, on either side of them. We sort of deliberately built the stage so that it wasn't so far off the ground that the speaker was the almighty person, you know, looking down on the individuals who were beneath them. You know, that type of stuff, which just changes up the way that the information is then received, which I just don't think conference organisers ever really had thought about. So we play with a lot of those things to try to ensure that the message that was delivered was received well. And I was always of the belief that people get excited at conferences until they get to the car park. So that sort of maximum takeaway and, and sort of implementation value into the coming days, weeks, months, years, five years, like you say, Dan, was, was something incredibly important to me. Yeah, I think that's awesome. So Jace, what are some of your favorite books I've already sort of said one of the authors that I love. I was just, it just sort of during lockdown, I was, I was reading, I reread the, the book, The Icarus Deception, which is a book by, uh, by Seth Godin. It's a phenomenal book for those who haven't read it. And if you don't subscribe to sort of any of Seth's stuff, it's, it's pretty good. It kind of talks about that old sort of mythological analogy of society sort of says don't fly too high when the, the, the mythology around Icarus who, who essentially jumped off a cliff to fly away from his prison and was given a bunch of wings but was told don't fly too high and he flew too high and the sun melted the wings and, and sort of he perished but the hidden part of the story that, that sort of was never told was don't fly too low because otherwise the salt water will actually corrode your wings but societally all we hear is don't shoot for the stars be a cog in the wheel be a player for the man that type of stuff so just that that sort of aspirational learning is is what the the Icarus deception is sort of all about I quite like that probably doesn't have an enormous relevance now because I think there's more of an entrepreneurial flavor to the world these days but when I read that book sort of felt very um, industrial revolution I work in a big company I check in I check out I'm nine till five and, and that's the extent of my work and that was sort of meaningless. The other book that I love that I've sort of reread a number of times is the book The Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell. It's a it's a very very good book that sort of just puts a lot of theory around some of where it is that we actually stand today. So there are a few key books. Cool. It's interesting you mentioned sort of the Icarus deception. I think it's an issue we have in Australia is that tall poppy syndrome where we do like to. You know, as soon as someone does achieve quite a lot, we do like to sort of take shots at them and, and sort of pull them down. But at the same time, yeah, it's sort of like when you do speak out or you do try to build a brand or build an image. I mean, is it something that you faced when building Jason Andrew, the voice of property? Yeah, it is, Dan. Like, you know, uh, Alan Jones calls it the Melbourne Cup mentality, you know, whereby we we sort of load up the best horses with the most amount of weight and then we cheer the lightweight to come sort of flying down the straight. It's, it's sort of the tall part. He uses that in a tax analogy as an example, but it, it sort of, mm. you know, is, is relevant this space too. Uh, look, I think everyone wants to cheer you on the way up, but sooner or later you are seen as aloof, you're seen as as someone who, you know, is, is untouchable or whatever it is. And that for me was 
I never wanted that. I was always sort of told that the people who made you who you are, you, you've always got to sort of remember those people. And so I've got some sort of long-standing industry friends who I will never forget, who I would do anything for. And money sort of seemingly is, a, is sort of the key currency for most people. But for me, time is the currency to those individuals and giving them the relevant time because they sort of made me who I am. You know, so... There's a guy on the, on the Gold Coast in, in Queensland who was one of my original mentors, Hazel Cush, who I mentioned earlier on. You know, so many of our key clients who if they sort of came to me and asked me for something now, I'd drop everything and, and sort of fly up and see them and, and sort of no money would exchange hands. I think that that's incredibly important and that sort of removes, you know, a lot of that ego that people sort of like to associate with people who are successful. And what are some challenges you think that the real estate industry in Australia faces? Well, that's a bit of a about turn, but yeah. No, no, it's, it's not at all. Again, you know, like to use a saying, the race to the bottom sort of seemingly sort of fits quite well here. It's the same with sort of most industries. Our Queensland commission rate is 2.5%. New Zealand's a little bit higher. Our, our New South Wales commission rate is about 1.5%. And it's not uncommon for people down here to do it at 1%. So despite us last month making about a billion dollars worth of sales because our commission rate's at 1.5%, the profitability of our business here is, is sort of nowhere near in line with the businesses of Queensland or, or, or New Zealand based on the fact that the commission values are so low. And I think a lot of agents, particularly in New South Wales, hide behind the fact that property prices have skyrocketed. Subsequently, they they should charge less. But I think what they've forgotten is providing, as I said before, sort of demonstrable value to sort of anyone who comes into contact with their business. I think that real estate too is incredibly transactionally focused and it's it's this is not a game of transactions. This is a game of, of long-standing relationships. The transient in real estate is sort of, call it eight years. So if someone buys a property and they, they won't sell for eight years, but most real estate agents, you bought a property, that's it. I won't speak to you until you go to sell again. But the problem is that, that I was absent during that entire time. And because of, of that, that absence of relationship, when it comes time for you to sell, I was nowhere to be found during the previous eight years. Why would you give the business back to me? So, yeah. you know, people need to recognize that real estate is a long-term game. It's not just a quick buck, but it's about making sure that you, you become the agent of choice before people choose to sell. And then the commission rates look after themselves and all of those sorts of things. And if we as an industry can spend a lot of time there, I think we become considerably better off. That's a great point. Taking it as a a real long-term game. I mean, I'm sure the, a career span for a real estate agent would be quite a long time. What's the average, you know, off the top of your head? I don't, to be honest with you, but we, you say that we are also an industry of high churn, as sort of are many industries. But, you know, I've always said we have been for a sustained period of time an industry that is the, the best of the rest or, or a second choice industry. You know, I've tried everything else. So oh, I might try real estate. You know, I, I drove past that <laughs> that I like and so I like real estate therefore (laughs) people actually quickly realise that it is not that game sort of like me saying well I was good at colouring in so therefore I'm going to do your job Dan like that's (laughs) not remotely close to what you do Uh, so yeah I, I just think kind of 
understanding the depths of the work that our industry does. You know, people just look at the transaction, that's all they're interested in. And in any industry, relationship reigns supreme. People say that they've got a database. They don't have a database. They've got a list of contacts. They've got names and numbers on a spreadsheet or in a CRM system. And, and no one, like, that's all that it is. A database is someone yeah. who I've got a true relationship with, you know, that I've, I've spoken to several times this year. I've had key touch points. There's no doubt that technology can actually be a, a huge element of that, but the individual still needs to power that and drive those campaigns. So, yeah, that's certainly my feeling about our industry, but I think that that can resonate across a number of industries. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jase, thanks very much for taking the time. Just in closing, we just ask a few questions to wrap up. So, who's someone remarkable that you know that we should speak to? I've kind of mentioned the name sort of the White family throughout the course of this interview a bit, but Brian White would be someone who would be incredible to sort of have a chat to. You know, he's one of the great Australian business stories that sort of so many people actually don't know. So he would certainly be someone that you just will not meet a nicer human being. And he's, he's, he got handed this company when he was 30 years of age. His dad said, I'm out, I'm done, see you later. It's an incredible Australian story. So I definitely think he'd be the guy. Yeah, great. Thanks, man. And what's your favorite quote or the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I love the saying, the best thing I did was surround myself with the right heroes, which is just another way of saying we are the company that we keep. I think that's a really important thing. But fundamentally, you asked me about a skill set as an auctioneer earlier on. What The thing that people forget is that in order to conduct an auction, you actually needed to do the work to get the auction. So everyone sort of forgets about prospecting to get business. So I always sort of sit around prospecting that a simple hello can lead to a million different things. And that's sort of one of those things that everyone forgets. We're sort of so fearful of the phone or of, of an email or, or sort of a face-to-face coffee, which, of course, is, is better than anything. That, for me, is one of my favorite pieces of advice for sure. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, mate, finally, where can people learn more about you? Look, I, it's funny. I actually try to do all I can to be a very private person. It sounds <laughs> incongruous given sort of the auctioneering style. I'm actually deeply introverted. I'm off Facebook. I think it's still up. I haven't deleted it, but I don't have it. I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't really ever post. I sort of just reshare some things that that Dan might might share. And I've done all I can to actually sort of take a backward step. As I said before, leadership is actually about pushing other people forward. There might be some residue left over if people (laughs) stuff. There's some really bad videos of the arrogant Jason Andrew sort of 10, 15 years ago who filmed a a video in a helicopter with some models, which I'm deeply ashamed of, to be honest. (laughs) Uh, I promise uh, not to post them in the show notes. People still love to drag that out. Funnily enough, about that video, the guy who said, let's do that video, I said, I don't want to do that video. It's against what I am. And he said, no, I'll do it free of charge if we get a million hits you need to pay me. We ne- we got nowhere near a million hits, but I feel like 10 years later, whenever I tell this story, I get sort of an extra 10 or 20 hits. So. <laughs> well, mate, we don't want to direct it to it. You don't want to end up paying for it. I think if you go Jason Andrew helicopter video or something like that, <laughs> it, it makes intriguing video. But again, I'm deeply ashamed. That's <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, mate, thanks again for taking the time. I uh, really appreciate it. I think there's some great takeaways from this discussion. Pleasure, bud. Cheers, Jason. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Someone Remarkable. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your network. To support us, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. To learn more about us or the guests on this show, visit dsrb.com.au slash podcast. 
DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. We hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.